Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash QTZ. This activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Endometrial cancer is a disease that's growing in incidence, and we have a growing population of women needing appropriate and effective therapy. Today, I'm going to take some time to review the data around the treatment of advanced endometrial cancer, and particularly in the second-line setting. This is a very important topic, mainly because we now have a new molecular classification system for endometrial cancer, and this changes how we approach therapy. We have new treatments that are exciting and have had a meaningful impact on patient outcomes. I'm sure many of you are already familiar with the new molecular classification system for endometrial cancer, first described by the TCGA and now incorporated into most clinical practices. We have four molecular subgroups of major interest. There's the whole E mutated subgroup, the mismatch repair deficient subgroup, the P53 abnormal, and the no specific molecular profile. And you can see that these molecular groupings are linked to prognosis. And as we go through this presentation, we'll be reminded that these groupings are also linked to therapy. Most centers should now be incorporating some sort of testing for these molecular subgroups. In clinical practice, there may be different ways of doing this. One such approach is the PROMISE classifier. Here is the decision tree where a combination of immunohistochemistry and genetic testing can be used to classify the tumor into the four molecular subgroups. The key message is that today we have to do some molecular testing hopefully to identify mismatch repair deficient, P53 abnormal, and polymutated cases in order to make treatment decisions. So just as a reminder about the guidelines for the management of advanced and recurrent endometrial cancer, in many cases, surgery should be considered. And within each center, there would likely be a multidisciplinary review. Systemic therapy is an important component of managing more advanced stage or high-risk disease. Options might include hormone therapy, chemotherapy. Of course, we have new data emerging about the role of immunotherapy. And this is all linked to understanding the molecular subtype of the disease we're dealing with. So let's just review some of the longer-term key data around the use of immunotherapy in the second-line setting. So just remember, these patients have already been treated with chemotherapy for metastatic disease at least once, usually a combination of carboplatin and paclitaxel. And what we have is a few trials that have reported very successful results, including this Keynote 158 trial, which is a second-line pembrolizumab study in women with mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer. The key things to note about this trial, the high objective response rate, a very notable complete response rate, and a median duration of response that is not yet reached after a median follow-up of 42 months. These kind of data were never reported with any prior therapies that we had available to us. And of course, mostly I'm talking about conventional chemotherapies. So the other finding of note when looking at the progression-free survival curves is we see a plateau remarkably after approximately two years, patients who have not relapsed appear to have very low risk of future relapse or progression. Moving ahead to the Garnett study, 
another second line treatment study, very similar to the pembrolizumab data. We see amazing results with a very high response rate of nearly 50% in the mismatch repair deficient group, a high complete response rate, approximately 15%. And again, a median duration of response that was not yet reached after a median follow-up of 27 months. There is activity of single-agent dostarlamab in the mismatch repair proficient group. It's not to be dismissed, but the response rates are lower. The median duration of response is under two years after 33 months of median follow-up. So we do definitely see that the progression-free survival curves plateau at around the two-year mark. The long-term outcome for people who respond is an excellent duration of response. Again, previously not seen with any standard therapies we were using. Now, finally, I want to speak about the mismatch repair proficient group a little bit more. This is the Keynote 775 study, which is a second-line study again in recurrent and metastatic endometrial cancer. So patients previously treated with standard chemotherapies were randomized to receive pembrolizumab and lenvatinib or physician choice chemotherapy. And we do see improvement in outcome for PFS in all patients. And OS, particularly in the mismatch repair proficient group, where we see a nearly five-month improvement in overall survival. The data is not available for the mismatch repair deficient group when it comes to OS and PFS. And we see higher response rates with this combination therapy and a fairly good duration of response the median duration of response is not reached for the mismetric repair deficient group. However, for the proficient group, we again see about a four-month improvement in median overall duration of response on the investigational arm. This combination of pembrolizumab and lenvatinib is certainly the new standard of care for mismatch repair proficient tumors that have previously been treated with a combination of standard chemo such as carboplatin and paclitaxel. Although there is toxicity reported on both the Keynote 158 and the Garnett studies, the rate of high-grade toxicities is very low. Very few patients discontinue treatment due to toxicity. In general, I think the treatments are considered to be very well managed. And as we become more familiar with the special toxicities around immunotherapy, I think most of us feel that these toxicities are much, much better and more tolerable to patients than standard chemotherapy. For Keynote 775, toxicity is something that is more of a concern. There is a lot of drug-related toxicity. And when reporting for the whole population, we see that just about every patient experienced some sort of drug-related AE. Unfortunately, this includes a higher rate of grade 3 and 4 toxicities. And a substantial proportion of patients did have to discontinue drug because of drug-related AEs. So when it comes to this combination, patients have to be very carefully counseled and followed. And there has to be a lot of active intervention by the treating physician to make sure that all toxicities are identified and treated well. In fact, I think there's a lot of consideration that has to go into choosing the right patient for treatment based on their profile, including their comorbidities. So since these new therapies have come into use, we have seen some publications of what might be called real-world evidence to demonstrate that compared to standard treatments, we are making progress with these new drugs. So for example, there is a study looking at the real world outcomes of patients with endometrial cancer using standard therapies, not immunotherapy. And the data generated there was compared to the outcomes on the Garnett study. Dostarlamab appears to be associated with a 44% lower risk of death. 
compared to what we used to see with real-world non-immunotherapy treatments. There's a similar publication with pembrolizumab in heavily pretreated recurrent endometrial cancers. And again, we see that the objective response rates from pembrolizumab in the real world is very high, 40%, meaning that clinicians are able to take this treatment into patients who are not necessarily trial eligible and still achieve excellent results. And that's very reassuring. I think this is interesting, but it's not a surprise. The data with dostarlimab and pembrolizumab are just unmatched by any other treatments we've ever been able to deliver to patients in this specific subgroup of mismetropare deficient patients. A small study from Korea of pembrolizumab and lenvatinib in primarily mismetropare proficient tumors. The objective response rate was slightly lower than reported in the trial. But again, when selected properly, we do see that this is an active treatment in a patient group that may otherwise have very few to no real options. So how do you go about choosing your treatments? I would like to walk you through a couple of cases. From my own practice, the 48-year-old female diagnosed with stage 4 grade 2 endometrioid endometrial cancer and the molecular profile showed it to be p53 wild type, mismetropair deficient, and ER positive. In this case with the stage 4 patient, we did not perform poly testing as it would not necessarily change our treatment options for her, particularly as she was mismetropare deficient. So her treatment course was to receive carboplatin and paclitaxel, and she had an excellent partial response. Because of some local symptoms, she did actually have surgery postoperatively. We saw that she still had some presence of FTG avid disease in the retrocural, retroperitoneal, and pelvic nodes. So she was started briefly on letrozole, but she had signs of disease progression. Should she have chemotherapy again? She had an excellent initial response. We could consider that. Or she has mismetropare deficient disease. What about pembrolizumab and dastarlamide? In terms of choosing between those two agents, I think it's mostly an issue around access, familiarity, or patient preference. For example, dostarlimab can be given once every six weeks after the fourth cycle. The pembrolizumab trial delivered pembrolizumab every three weeks. So these are some of the discussions that can be had. But for this patient, I think the most obvious next treatment would have to be to try immunotherapy, given the data we just reviewed. Here's another case, 69-year-old female with recurrent high-grade uterine serous carcinoma, P53 abnormal and mismetropare proficient. In these cases, poly is unlikely to be a helpful marker because she is P53 abnormal and mismetropare proficient. So we know that these cases tend to be quite chemotherapy sensitive. Her first line treatment was six cycles of carboplatin and paclitaxel. She had an excellent response. At the time of her next progression, what would we be offering her? You could look at two things. First of all, if she does have a good long-term response to chemo, it wouldn't be unreasonable to return to chemotherapy. But the phase three data tell us that the best outcomes in terms of prolonging patient survival in the mismatch repair proficient group would be the combination of pembrolizumab and lenvatinib. And so if you have a fit patient who would be a suitable candidate for that approach, I think that is the de facto second line treatment for this patient. So in summary, for women who have not previously been on immunotherapy, in the second-line treatment setting, whether it's single agent for mismetropare deficient or combination for mismetropare proficient, immunotherapy is really the new emerging standard of care. It's well-tolerated and impactful. I want to mention something important, which is the second-line treatment space 
is going to be different in the coming years. Dr. Lucy Gilbert is going to discuss some of the changes in first-line therapy where we will be introducing immunotherapy as part of standard treatment for mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancers at diagnosis in women with advanced disease. And this will certainly influence how we think about second-line treatment in women who may have had prior immunotherapy treatment. We may be looking at this base differently in the years to come. Endometrial cancer is one of the few cancers affecting women whose death rate is rising relentlessly. These are figures from Ontario. Endometrial cancer for all age groups is rising. But what is disturbing here is that there's an alarming doubling of incidence of endometrial cancer, even in the really young women, the 30 to 49 age bracket. Most people look at endometrial cancer as though it really is a good prognosis cancer. This is true for the vast majority of endometrial cancers which are detected in early stage. These cancers can be treated by surgery plus minus adjuvant treatment. The problem is that if endometrial cancer is diagnosed in advanced stage or it recurs, the prognosis is very poor with a five-year survival of 17%. Fortunately, it also happens to be a cancer that is amenable to biomarker-driven therapy. So knowing more about this field can have profound consequences for our patients. Today, we'll be concentrating on recurrent or advanced endometrial cancer because it's this group that's accounting for the increase in death rates because the five-year survival is only 17%. So how should we be looking at endometrial cancer to do right by our patients? Using the PROMISE classifier, you can see that there are four groups. The DMMR, which is the second largest group, form about 25 to 30% of endometrial cancers. And this is the group that is very sensitive to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Several trials have shown that in patients with recurrent or advanced endometrial cancer, immune checkpoint inhibitors rather than second-line chemotherapy should be used because second-line chemotherapy does not work once platinum-based chemotherapy fails and endometrial cancer recurs. The exciting data I'm going to share with you today is that there have been two very good trials that have reported positive results of using immune checkpoint inhibitors in the primary setting, which can make a substantial difference to our patients. In the RUBY trial, there were about 500 patients, of which 245 went into the arm that had standard of care chemotherapy plus the immune checkpoint inhibitor dostalimab, and half the patients were randomized into just chemotherapy with placebo instead of the immune checkpoint inhibitors. And you can see 
that in all comers, the progression-free survival was substantially better in the patients who received immune checkpoint inhibitor dostalimab with chemotherapy with the hazard ratio of recurrence or death at 0.64. So a 36% reduction in risk of recurrence or death. What is even more exciting is that this translated into overall survival. So in patients who got standard of care chemotherapy with the immune checkpoint inhibitor, dostalimab, the risk of death was reduced by 36%. What is really impressive is how the patients or MMR deficient patients did. About a quarter of the patients in this trial had an MMR-deficient endometrial cancer. And you can see that in this group, the risk of progression or death was reduced by 72%. And the curves remained separated for a very long time. What was the cost in terms of toxicity by adding an immune checkpoint inhibitor to the standard of care treatment? The results are quite heartening. The grade 3 events related to the addition of dostanlimab was not substantially different. You can see 33% in the dostanlimab arm compared to 19.5 in the placebo arm. Most of these were immune-related rash, maculopapillary rash or a standard rash. There was slight increase in breathlessness and liver enzymes being altered. But this is a small price to pay for the substantial reduction in progression or death. The other exciting trial is the NRGGY018 in which the immune checkpoint inhibitor added to standard of care chemotherapy was pembrolizumab. This trial had 800 and 16 patients randomized to receive chemotherapy, lenone or chemotherapy and pembro. And you can see, again, there was a significant reduction of progression or death by 46%. Again, the results were good in all patients with the DMMR cohort or the patients with MMR deficient endometrial cancer did the best. The reduction was similar to the previous trial in the region of 70% reduction in disease progression or death. The cost in terms of toxicity was really quite acceptable. The incidence of adverse events were 47.2% in the placebo arm compared to 63% in the DMMR cohort and Almost similar difference in the PMMR cohort, which is 45.3 and 55%. So to summarize, for women with advanced recurrent endometrial cancer, the addition of immune checkpoint inhibitors to the standard of care chemotherapy substantially improved outcomes when added to the first-line setting. All patients benefited but the DMMR patients benefited the most with a reduction in death or progression by 70%.
the benefits to women, especially DMMR cohort, is so much that it should be made available to everybody. At the moment, immune checkpoint inhibitors are not available to everybody. We know that P53 mutated patients, the high-grade serous patients do very badly, but the second largest group is the DMMR patients. So we test them in the frontline setting, hoping that very soon immune checkpoint inhibitors will be available because the DMMR patients did so well. The question remains whether the chemotherapy is really needed in this group. Can we treat these patients with just immune checkpoint inhibitors? Currently, there are trials going on. And when the data from these trials are mature, we'll have the answer to that. Thank you so much. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.